Do you really think this will be the best idea you're going to have in your life? That this is the last deal you ever do? And if you believe that, for me, then there's something wrong because, I mean, it depends on the age you are, but I mean, if you're kind of in your 20s or 30s, there's always going to be another business that you can buy. And, and kind of the experience curve of doing this first one is much more important and getting success than trying to maximize something hypothetical. So it's asking yourself, look, are you going to do more than one of these? And if not, then there's some questions to ask, you know, do you really want to do this or trying to get a CV point so you get hired in a corporate or innovation program or something like that. You know, it's a, do you really mean it? Elian Iliev is the chief executive of Net Scientific, an AIM-listed investor that specializes in helping its medtech, therapeutic, sustainability and robotics portfolio grow in three key markets, the US, the UK and Israel. Elian, who came to Net Scientific after the firm acquired his VC EMV Capital, also tells us how that merger came to be how the combined group isn't afraid of acquiring startups to turn them around before seeking external funding once more, and why the financial regulations around being a publicly traded company are a positive. He also ponders how living through the fall of communism and then South African apartheid has shaped his views, and how his education at Cambridge convinced him that investing in a local fund, Martlet Capital, made sense. My name is Thierry Heles. This is Talking Tech Transfer. Ilian, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Thierry, and thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure having you, and I look forward to discussing EMV and Net Scientific with you. Can you give me an overview of EMV Capital and Net Scientific and how the two relate to each other? Sure, absolutely. So, Net Scientific is an uh, AIM listed company. We invest in uh, technology companies, in uh, life sciences, sustainability and industrials. And within these uh, verticals, there's, of course, a lot of variety in terms of technology types. But broadly, we are focused on what has come to be known as deep tech or good old fashioned science intensive enterprises using everything from AI, robotics, biotech and so on. Our model is a little bit unusual, a bit of a hybrid. So what we call our capital light investment model is we use a little bit of PLC balance sheet, combining that with syndicated investments from our investment network. And once we invest, we are quite hands-on involved with these businesses. We take board seats, but in addition to that, we help our investee companies with partnering up with some of our corporate Friends is probably a strong word, but the corporates we work with closely and frequently. We help them internationalize faster. We have a strong presence in the US, so many UK and European companies benefit from internationalizing faster with a friend. And also help identify high-ranking executives that can join these businesses, uh, working with them to streamline their business plans and so on. The reason we do that is the deep tech space is notoriously difficult and uh, capital intensive, and we are using or reusing the playbooks we have developed over multiple transactions and portfolio companies so that all of our portfolio companies can benefit from the knowledge and skill sets, capabilities and networks we have built to accelerate their own investments. In terms of uh, size, uh, we are now 24 companies spread across the UK, US, Europe and Israel. Some of them are present in more than one locations. And as I indicated earlier, it's in several sectors. 
Is it the same model for both NetScientific and EMV Capital? So it's one company. EMV Capital is a subsidiary of NetScientific, and essentially EMV is the corporate finance VC syndication arm of NetScientific. A bit on the history there, I actually founded uh, and ran EMV Capital for many years. And in the early days of COVID, NetScientific and EMV Capital combined through an acquisition by NetScientific. And the thinking at the time was that actually the companies had very compatible philosophies and focus on the market. And it was around building critical mass and combining the teams of the two businesses to create something that's uh, stronger. Once again, it was the combination of a PLC balance sheet with the capital light investment model and flexibility and efficiency of an entrepreneurially run business. So today we run as one entity. There is the PLC on top, EMV as a regulated entity underneath, but running as one business. That makes sense. You've mentioned sectors, life sciences, deep tech. Why the focus on these sectors? And did that come about organically or was that the goal from the outset? I think both companies, NetScientific and EMV, in their own ways, started with their DNA, if you will, in deep tech and science intensive. Speaking about myself as a founder, investor, a professional entrepreneur, I've always worked in that space across the industrials, electric, medtech space. And for me, it was always fascinating that look, you know, most of the heavy impact in the world ultimately comes from science-intensive, IP-intensive businesses. But of course, they're notoriously difficult to scale. So almost the question I was trying to solve many years ago is there has to be a solution. So what is the investment playbook or investment formula that enables you to crack this capital-intensive approach? And I feel quite a few years later, we have come up with something quite unique and quite differentiated in the market that combines the ability to invest with the ability to accelerate these businesses internationally to get them to a success. It's different to what's happened in the rest of the VC industry, I'm aware, but I feel that what's happened over the last 18 months in the VC industry is moving markets our way. So we're very happy to welcome them. Does that mean that you're going to stay focused on these sectors or are you considering eventually expanding into other areas? Well, I think if you look at life sciences, industrials, and sustainability, it doesn't include fashion and it does not include uh, music making, but includes a heck of a lot in the world. And again, that is where some of the major impact problems or global challenge problems are. Now, we're not looking at this with kind of rose-tinted, dewy-eyed investors. You know, we are in this for the profit. This is very much a profit and investment and return-driven enterprise. We just happen to believe that this is where some of the major opportunities are. And I believe we're seeing this all around us right now. Does that mean that we don't do digital software? Of course not. You know, a lot of the transformational opportunities in deep tech and hardware are because of digitization, digitization of design, acceleration of design uh, in silico, testing in life sciences. When you look at robotics, again, you know, the growth of AI enabling that data surrounding IoT and so on and so forth. So we mustn't look hardware in isolation. It's not just about bashing metal. It's around combining that with the best digital tools we can find. That makes sense. How do you source deals then? Well, in the early days, it was a lot of outgoing work in terms of meeting up with the various incubators, accelerators, corporates, and so on. We've been on the market now for many years. So within our sector, we're known reasonably well. In terms of some of the most interesting deals that we have seen, those come from our partners or co-investors. Or indeed, it's companies we have tracked for many years and we found the right point for us to invest. The right point, that's the right point for our investors <laughs> to get the best return, but also where we can make the most impact 
in, in those businesses. Is the current VC slump affecting your portfolio or your operations at all? Uh, I'll say something that will sound strange, but it's affecting us in a positive way. <laughs> okay, yeah, that is a strange statement. <laughs> Please elaborate. I think there's several things that have happened over the last 18 months. It's broadly recognized now that in the digital fintech crypto area, you know, that basically some sort of a hill has been passed. And at least for some of those sectors, there's been a rather steep precipice. But I think the VC space goes through these cycles. It's well known. We had a cycle in 2001. There was another cycle in between. And then, you know, the instrument of venture capital is so powerful to driving technological change and driving returns for investors that it's not going to be abandoned. I think what we are happening is with the burst of the digital and fintech and crypto bubble, that now a lot more focus is coming towards these new problems, quote unquote, they're not new at all. There's been problems that people in the sectors have been aware of for several decades. I mean, just to give you some examples, the electrification of the energy system. We've known this, has been, this would be a problem for decades now. The growth of renewables, what this is leading to stability of the energy systems and so on and so forth. But it's now that it's getting to critical mass. And of course, risk capital is looking for new homes. Is it easy? No, nothing's easy. And as I indicated earlier, we believe that the investment models that are going to be winning models in this space have to be different to what was a meeting model in fintech or crypto or elsewhere. And, you know, the VC industry has gone through several of these reinventions. We believe our model is one of the winning models. There's other similar examples. If you look at, yes, biotech uh, has crashed, but the problems biotech is serving have not gone away. People are still dying from cancer. Uh, infectious diseases are even more important now as a problem to treat and so on and so forth. So what we are seeing is actually there's a greater focus on less speculative, more meaningful targets and looking at more capital efficient ways of growing life sciences uh, businesses. That is good to hear, especially thinking about it as a consumer or potentially cancer patient, because the odds are I will get cancer in my lifetime, that these sectors are still seen as relevant by investors like yourself, and they're not just being abandoned, even if there's less interest perhaps in biotech at the moment. Two of your companies, um, Glycotest and Proaxis, are subsidiaries of Net Scientific rather than just investments. Why did you take that approach with these two companies? Well, I think, again, I talked about a differentiated investment model. And again, this is where kind of a classic fund structure probably puts quite a few constraints for good reason <laughs> on what can be done. But in fact, in our space, the most, some of the most interesting opportunities often at the outside don't quite fit a kind of a template textbook VC approach. And with the structure we have, we are able to take deep stakes when that is appropriate into a business, intervene, transform the business, and then attract new investors in that company at a fundamentally different valuation and take it to the next level. So in both the Glycotest and Proaxis cases, that is the approach we're following. Of course, from an accounting and reporting perspective, there are subsidiaries, but for all intents and purposes, we see them as portfolio companies that need to be supported on their journey. In the context of Glycotest, we have a global pharma as a co-investor. Glycotest is developing a uh, diagnostic for liver cancer. They have one of the largest collections of blood samples in that space. It's really fascinating. And Proaxis is developing uh, diagnostic tests in the respiratory space around COPD. Again, a really fascinating space growing out of Belfast and building on the UK's position as a global leader in respiratory diagnostics and treatments. But from our perspective, look, these are exciting businesses. Probably they were not investable because of structural issues. 
And we came in and we're fixing those issues and then helping the companies to get back to market. Are there any other advantages or maybe disadvantages to having them as a subsidiary, perhaps outside the accounting? Yeah. Well, I think ultimately you need to be willing in this space to share the spoils if you want to share the risk. And for any technology risk or scientific risk or go-to-market significant risk company, you know, the venture plays, ultimately the go-it-alone investor route is too expensive. You just can't do that. And I think where there has been some mistakes by perhaps our own business in times gone by, but also other peers in the POC spaces trying to go it alone. It's just too expensive and too risky. Sharing the deals with other like-minded investors is important. It broadens the capital base, but also brings different approaches, different ways of thinking, different corporate links to these businesses. So again, kind of subsidiary versus investment, look, it makes sense in certain episodes, but ultimately our preference is to treat such companies as portfolio companies, grow them, get them through the value inflection points and create value for our shareholders in that way. Yeah, that basically answers my next question as well, which is, um, would you consider acquiring other portfolio companies? There's different ways of broadening and deepening a portfolio. And we can be quite opportunistic, flexible and quick. But the exit point ultimately is realizing value by selling those businesses or exiting them through an IPO and so on. Yeah, that makes sense. You've also made an investment in Martlet Capital, which is itself a Cambridge UK focused investor. What prompted this relationship and are there any advantages or disadvantages to being an LP in another fund? I was familiar with Martlet Capital and the excellent work that the team there have been doing for many years, going back to my uh, academic years in that same village or city. You know, what's happened in Cambridge is nothing short of amazing. It's uh, one of the leading VC destinations in the world, as we all know. But again, just what the way the cluster has developed is very unique, idiosyncratic, difficult to understand for outsiders. And at the same time, somehow the damn thing works. And uh, <laughs> there was an opportunity to get involved in a spin out and restructuring of Matlet Capital to support their really excellent team who come both with skill sets, great network, and already a good portfolio. And uh, knowing how specific that cluster is and also the really strong IP coming out of there, we decided that it would make sense for us to get involved both as an LP, but also to bring some of our investors into that business. And as a result, we have pretty good exposure to deal flow coming out of Cambridge and a number of synergies between our group and Matlet itself. Amazing. There's another aspect of Net Scientific that I want to pick up on, which you mentioned earlier, which was that you invest in the US, the UK and Israel. What are the opportunities or perhaps the challenges of investing on both sides of the Atlantic and a little bit into Asia, just about Asia? Well, I think in many ways, the changing opportunities around Asia are also requalifying or helping us reimagine what the US market is for high tech. A global change has happened, which is the uh, changes in globalization. I don't want to say the death of globalization because it's been forecast since the late 19th century, but certainly the global environment has changed significantly. And within that, where China is has changed compared to where China was in investors' minds as little as three or four years ago. We have to recognize that. And we need to look for scale-up for UK businesses and European businesses. And the most obvious scale-up location is the US market. Love it or hate it, it is there. It is the biggest single integrated market out there that speaks the same language and so on and so forth. 
And what we found, and this I think is not just a UK piece, because in the UK we like to talk about the cousins across the pond and so on, but I think the same thinking is there, whether it's the UK or Republic of Ireland or elsewhere in Europe or Eastern Europe or in Israel, that it is a destination where you can really scale. Now, from a VC selfish perspective, of course, there is a arbitrage or differential in valuations. You know, a US company at the same stage of development, as we all know, is worth more in the US than it's here. That doesn't mean it's simple. We can't just pack up a couple of suitcases in our area as business. And in terms of our own signature approach, it's not so much around, well, look, we've got a nice office in Silicon Valley. Come by for a coffee when you're there next time. It's more around a very hands-on approach of building links into US industry. Now, this is around life sciences, around, for instance, in diagnostics, there is uh, what's known as lab developed tests in the US, which is a different way of entering the US healthcare market and getting reimbursement rates for your businesses, or around telecoms, aerospace and electronics, where you know there is a big cluster outside of Washington, DC, for some very good reasons. And again, there's this large integrated market that, that we can access. So it's a very specific, proactive, hands-on approach of helping our businesses set up in the US. I can go on and on about the US construction industry or how sustainability is waking up in the US. So for each of the sectors, there's a really good case on why we should be helping to grow in the US. Is there something that you wish each side of the pond would learn from each other? Yes, uh, English. <laughs> Humor. My jokes don't always go so well. But uh, on a serious note, I think what we can learn in the US here, and again, it's I'm not being original here, we've heard this many times, is it's ambition. If you really believe in your business, well, you know, don't be shy in terms of what it can scale to. It's never too early to cross over and to understand what those other markets uh, do. And it's just around scale, scale of both what's possible from an investment perspective and industrial scale up. I think looking at it the other way around, what we find is that partly because of the much larger availability of capital in the US and the markets that and greater propensity to take risks is that uh, perhaps on the execution side, sometimes there isn't as much attention as we like and kind of uh, greater attention to detail. What I'll say, again, in terms of what we can learn from the other side is just the technology of selling. You know, just we tend to find really, really, really good sales and BD professionals over in the US with skill sets that we would do well to kind of transition to here. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. As you mentioned, you also listed on AIM, your public company, PLC. Are there any opportunities or challenges around that as an investor? Yes. There are trade-offs between being private and uh, public. The obvious are around reporting information disclosures, and so on. I think in the current environment where public markets have been particularly depressed, you know, it's, uh, of course, difficult for players in the public space, both in the UK and the US, to see, you know, operationally, you, you believe you're doing well and you're fulfilling objectives, and the market doesn't, you don't believe the market, hypothetically, doesn't quite recognize it. However, being the eternal optimist, what I also see is that there are some really good, strong disciplines that being listed gives a business in terms of how it is run, the structure that it has. And specifically for us as an investor, being a POC actually probably opens more doors than it closes in terms of the capital light approach that I just described. I think we need to be seeing the financing of technology businesses, I'm not talking about ourselves, but the market we're in. It's on a continuum between public and private. And frankly, us being a POC, means that our ear is much closer to the ground in terms of what's happening in the public markets with institutions and so on 
but also being able to borrow talent from the public markets, people that have grown PLC businesses and so on, to take that talent to the private markets and perhaps the other way around. So other challenges, yeah, sure, but uh, we see a lot more opportunities, That, uh, but it's up to us to capture those opportunities. The market won't give them to us on a silver platter. Yeah. We are recording this pretty much at the start of the year, so I think this is a good question. What are the opportunities lying ahead for Net Scientific as we enter 2023? Let's, uh, let's talk again uh, next Christmas. But look, it's a very interesting year. I think, personally, I have lived through a few changes. I can, I, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not English and not Scottish either. So I've seen the end of communism and I've seen the end of civil war in Southern Africa and the end of apartheid and so on. So change happens. Drastic change happens, and we can see the tectonic plates of history are shifting again. But, you know, in such environments, being a player such as ourselves with access to risk capital, money, and flexibility, and uh, being nimble, that's exactly where you want to be because gigantic opportunities are being opened up by these uh, changes. Within that, what is it that we're focused on as a player? Well, what we are seeing is that the changes in the VC industry are opening up opportunities to us. Some deals that were too expensive are no longer expensive. Companies are becoming a lot more receptive to our proactive model, as in, you know, you can't just expect people to shower you with money anymore. And equally, some of the priority sectors we're focused on around cancer, around therapeutics, around energy transition, around sustainability, around circular economy, all of those are now top of people's minds. Most of the areas we focused on are now a priority. So it's really the opportunities for our portfolio are really being opened up. Now, yeah, it's true that the capital markets conditions mean that uh, valuations are not going through the roof, but we're looking at the fundamentals and the fundamentals are actually really strong. It's in such, if you just look at one thing, you know, the, the spike in natural gas, which crisis because of the war in Ukraine, that in one short episode lasting several weeks or months, focused everybody's minds on the importance for insulation and energy efficiency of the home. Who benefits? Well, companies such as our portfolio, Qbot, who have seen their business expand dramatically using robots to do underfloor insulation. Once again, the war in Ukraine has underlined the importance of resilient SATCOMs systems. Who benefits? Well, companies such as Sofant, our Edinburgh University spin-out, who are developing SATCOM's terminals for low-orbit satellite communication systems. COVID led to a stretching to the point of breaking of cancer care systems in the UK and internationally. Who benefits from this greater awareness? Well, it's companies at the forefront of digitization of cancer care, improved diagnostics, such as our company Vortex, who is doing circulating tumor cells in liquid biopsy. So besides being shameless about advertising our portfolio here, I think I'm demonstrating the point. These are not hype of companies. These are right in the middle of what's happening in our economy right now. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I'm interviewing you. I'm expecting you to name some portfolio companies here or there, sprinkle them throughout. And that makes perfect sense. As you say, you know, those companies will benefit in times of crisis, of whatever the crisis might be. Are there any specific challenges that lie ahead, maybe this year or perhaps longer term than that? I think ultimately it's around investor sentiment and investor worldviews, because I think it's simply the investment community is confused about what comes next. And it's not the one or the other. It's not just inflation, therefore high interest rate, therefore you do your MPV sums, therefore I should stick my money in a bank rather than invest. It's much broader than that. It's just where are things going. What I'm hoping for this year is that 
some of those major risks get settled one way or another. Last year saw the explosion of many of these risks, things that people just had lost track of or weren't. I mean, who would have thought there would be a war, a proper war in Europe? Who would have thought that we would see uh, double-digit inflation? So, you know, these are risks that we had just forgotten about, but we remember because 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we, we lived with these. They're out there now. Now it's around settling one way or another so that the investors can kind of switch back into decision-making. I think for our space, that's the major point. Peace would be nice. That, of course, is the other major risk that we have, which way the conflict goes. And, uh, you know, we all hope it goes one particular way. But at the same time, we're not going to sit on our hands. The opportunities are right now. And it's our responsibility, companies such as ourselves, not to get out of the market and sit it out, but to be right there in the middle of it and making decisions and helping our portfolio businesses. I want to talk a little bit about your own career as well. And I think you've touched upon this already. You've been with EMV Capital. Since 2018, you joined Net Scientific a year later. You're a founder of a few companies, including Eco Machines Ventures, of which you spun out EMV. You co founded a couple of startups before that, including one in South Africa, I think in 1997. What first piqued your interest in kind of deep tech innovation or university innovation more broadly, perhaps? I think it was a combination of several factors. I mean, as, as others from my generation we're always fascinated with space travel and the science fiction novels we read at the time and so on and then the real world application of some of those but uh, specifically when i was kind of in my formative years uh, professionally or kind of last years of high school informative years i saw the confluence of drastic change in terms of the end of one system the start of another the uh, rapid development of markets where markets didn't exist and the great opportunities that came from that a lot around reconstruction of infrastructure of systems. And within all of that, the elixir of the capitalist system, if you will, which is entrepreneurship. And for me, the great question always was, look at these incredible accumulations of knowledge and IP, universities and uh, existing corporates and so on. Look at the capital available out there. How do we connect this to make these opportunities? In a very hands-on way, you know, just that's where I lived. That's what happened. But, you know, there was a family business that I co-founded with my father, mostly my father driving it, but me doing a fair amount as well, which was in the industrial electric space in a post-Civil War environment in Southern Africa. And there you could see literally how running an electrical line through a village that had no electricity makes the difference of people living in utter misery to a few years later, there being a school, a little bit of an industry and so on. So you can really see hands first-hand knowledge, how a little bit of infrastructure can change people's lives. And equally, I saw in very drastic terms the difference between a really deprived healthcare system, as I saw in Southern Africa, and right next to it, what you had in South Africa, which was a world-class healthcare system with its own problems because of apartheid and so on. So you really see these extreme contrasts. And I think I've carried these contrasts with myself going forward because you saw those contrasts at the same time, but it was the confluence of time. In some ways, you know, when I look at our companies, well, look, actually, if this technology scales, this is the sort of jump you see in people's quality of life, in security of systems, and simply being able to deal with the enormous pressures uh, today's societies face due to all the challenges we know about. So I hope that was not too kind of philosophical, but when I trace down the decisions of why am I doing what I'm doing, it is back to observing firsthand those enormous contrasts and the role that technology and entrepreneurship can play 
in addressing those. Makes perfect sense to me. And you've also managed to mostly answer my other question, which was the changes that you've seen over the course of your career so far. Perhaps there are some similarities. I don't know, like you say, one system collapsed, another system replaced it. And God knows what the system will be that emerges out of the Ukraine war. But we, as you said, there's very much tectonic shifts going on and something is falling apart and something else will necessarily replace it, as these things always do. Is there a noteworthy challenge that you have overcome in your career that you've learned from or that others could learn from as well, perhaps? I'm not going to quote Churchill, but I'll refer to Churchill quote about, you know, when the black dog lies on your chest to go out and get some sunshine. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it exactly. But, but there is that element that, look, if you're in this space, if you're in the startup space, it is one of the most difficult things you can possibly do because you're dealing with uncertainty on all levels. And, you know, you're human. You cannot help but feel disillusioned and as your projects start knocking you about. It's around perseverance, but not losing your mind over it. And, and what I mean by that is that on the one hand, there is really that aspect of, look, you know, if you really believe in it, just keep driving, you know, one day at a time, one step at a time, keep driving that model. But there is the other side, don't do it in a vacuum, talk to other people, because sometimes you're just doing something that's not going to work. You really need to change and try something else. I'll add one more thing here. And I've, I've had this discussion with a few entrepreneurs. And when we're stuck on one thing or another, typically transaction terms. And the question I was asking, listen, do you really think this will be the best idea you're going to have in your life? That this is the last deal you'll ever do? And if you believe that, for me, then there's something wrong because, I mean, it depends on the age you are, but I mean, if you're kind of in your 20s or 30s, there's always going to be another business that you can buy. And, and the kind of the experience curve of doing this first one is much more important and getting success than trying to maximize something hypothetical. So it's Asking yourself, look, are you going to do more than one of these? And if not, then there's some questions to ask. You know, do you really want to do this or are you trying to get a CV point so you get hired in a corporate or an innovation program or something like that? You know, it's a, do you really mean it? Yeah. That's a really good question to ask someone. Is this the best idea that you think you'll ever have? I like that. I like that quite a lot, actually. That's really good. If you had a magic wand, is there something that you would change about how venture capital is done today? Yeah, excellent question. I think if I look into the UK, and people are trying to do something about it, but it's around opening up the major institutions, the pension funds and so on towards risk capital. So I think from an ecosystem and policy perspective, it's just recognizing that a lot of the money will be wasted. That's the nature of the beast. And yet, the impact to society will be there. Just look around us. Everything around us, you can trace down to one technology way for another. But you have to be comfortable that a part of that will be wasted. It's not specific to venture capital. It's in many areas of what we do, some of what we do is quote-unquote wasted. It's not really wasted. It's learning that goes back in society and other ventures and so on. We as VCs accept that, and that's why we have a portfolio approach and we have de-risking strategies and so on. But really from a policy perspective and from a macro comfort perspective, that to have that comfort. I think in terms of European VC, it is again to have a bit more confidence in our own models and our own insight. I think often we get mesmerized by what happens on the West side from us. And it's natural, of course, when you start seeing the big exits uh, on NASDAQ and so on, you know, back when there were big exits, back when there were any exits <laughs> <laughs> on NASDAQ, you know, it's, it's natural that you get mesmerized by that. But you know what? A lot of Asia grew in their own way. You know, it was not 
entirely focused on their east side, because <laughs> the, the US is on the east side from them. They had their own model and they were comfortable with that model and some really big scale up opportunities came out of that. So we have to gain more confidence and comfort from our model. Doesn't mean we have to have tunnel vision. That's a earlier part in our interview, you know, that we have to go out to the US and grow there and so on. But what's interesting for us in the US is precisely because we're different, you know, with something else different has done. Otherwise, there would be no space in the market. So being more comfortable with our models here. That is a good use of the magic wand. You've already mentioned several portfolio companies, QBot, SoFund, I think were two of them. This is kind of an open question. Are there any examples of other portfolio companies that you would like to highlight? Sure. I mentioned two in the healthcare space. One of them is it's actually a listed company that we still hold close to 5% of, PDS Biotech, which is NASDAQ listed. And here is a company that was a university spin-out where NetScientific first backed them. Then we supported them, including through when they went on the NASDAQ in terms of providing an anchor. And we've remained supportive ever since. And here is a company that through COVID was able to launch not one, but multiple phase two clinical trials and are now having some really amazing results. Their market cap has, after the fall last year, has behaved quite well, unlike a number of others on the biotech cohort. Be careful what I say, because it's a listed company and so on. But again, it's just as an example of what is possible in the context of really, really difficult environment of just not losing your head and just executing on the strategy you really believe in. Because ultimately, and they're in cancer therapeutics, ultimately what is on the other side is, well, it's saving lives and the market that that represents. And the venture side or the NASDAQ side, that's the boat that gets you there. So for us, that has been a really interesting and almost inspirational example to look at and remain involved in. I'll mention another example, which is Vortex Biosciences, which started off as a UCLA spin-out in the privately held. We applied our approach to turn around the business. It is now dually based UK, US, and being very brave, I suppose, that you know the model that they adopted, which was similar to the model of many others in that space, you know, it's overpopulated. That's not going to work. What else can we do in this space? And basically taking this very brave approach or decision that, look, we're going to be the first ones in the circulating tumor cell space that are going to have the following large number of tests done because the pure number of it means that we'll sort a bunch of things in the industry and, and, and so on and so forth. Almost similar to the an inspiration to the Human Genome Project. It's not quite the same in human impact, not claiming that, but it's kind of taking it from a situation where they had lost their way a little bit to building up the team, bring them also into the UK. So now we have this dual base and just reimagining what this platform means. And now they're doing quite well and uh, developing further here. I mean, I don't want to pick any further because I've probably boring your listeners to death by now, but go on our website and look at the rest of them. I think that is a good selection. And it's quite interesting to hear you talk about how you are hands-on, which I feel sometimes is a phrase that is overused in VC. Like a lot of VC firms out there are like, oh, you know, we don't just do money. We also do, you know, we're very hands-on. And I'm like, what does it mean? <laughs> so hearing you talk about how you actually go in and you turn around businesses or you help them figure out what their market is if they're in an overpopulated area is really interesting. That brings me pretty much to the end of the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you wanted people to know about Net Scientific before we go? I think I'll just finish with what I started. You know, it's the result of the combination of two businesses with a what we believe is an interesting, diversified sort of signature approach to investing in deep tech, looking at some really transformative opportunities in our own quite specific idiosyncratic way. We are starting to see the results of our investment approach over several years. 
And as a POC with an investment arm, we have uh, many ways of interacting with uh, interested players in the market. So uh, watch this space. Amazing. That's good closing words. Ilian, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thierry, and uh, appreciate your patience. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at guventuring, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thehelis at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Do 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 do